Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Hello, Eric. We just, uh, good seeing you last week for the first time in person in how many years? Two. Well, we, yeah. we saw each other in, we saw each other in California in November. That's right. And July, yes. right? Weren't you in July in I Austin? Wanna, yes, 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 yes. Okay. So it hasn't really been that long, but it just No, feels but like it was great seeing you. Years. You ran yeah. an amazing event and I have one oh. question for you. Okay. Will you forgive me? <laughs> Always. Like I said, it's not a party until something is broken, Eric. So, Okay, well, we'll introduce our, our guest today, but I just want to let our listeners know, Rachel is running a 500-person event for us. And I shot out a chandelier with people in the room with a t-shirt cannon. It was, it was uh, great fun. Nobody got hurt, luckily, but I, I do apologize for stopping the show, Rachel. Well, Thank you for makes, forgiving me on record. Makes it so much more fun, though, too. You just never know what to expect of these things. So thank you, Eric, for, for keeping people on edge. I love it. I it love was it. fun. Anyway, <laughs> nobody got hurt. Who do we have today? Oh, amazing guest. Okay, so let me let me give a proper introduction here. So joining us today is Dr. Samantha Ravitch. She's the chairman of the Foundation for Defense of Democracy's Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation and its Transformative Cyber Innovation Lab, as well as the principal instigator on the Foundation's Cyber-Enabled Economic Warfare Project. Also want to mention, uh, she's the author of the book, Marketization and Democracy, East Asian Experiences, published uh, in January 2000, uh, that according to one reviewer, has carried the analysis of the relationship between economic progress and democracy to a new level. Um, I am so excited for today's conversation. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Rachel, did you say principal instigator? Yeah, I like that. I liked it. Because I think think you were thinking of me. (laughs) I am the principal instigator, as as people that know me will will, uh, assert. Yeah. I like that. (laughs) I think she was thinking of me, though, as I shot out a uh, very large chandelier. (laughs) You should have seen it, Dr. Ravitch. The T-shirt just took off and went up instead of straight and right into the glass chandelier. It was perfect timing. Anyway... Principal and skater. We can go yeah, with that. I like it. <laughs> it's it's a Monday. Um, so, Sam, I, I'm just fascinated by your book. Um, and, and I know it was a little bit ago, but I mean, it's like required reading, right? I mean, for, for graduate level students and, and in many universities, yes? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and it is, we were talking, you know, 21 years ago that it was published. And, and the core thesis, which was, of course, my dissertation a few years prior, was that as countries marketize, meaning that people have the, the, um, they own the capital. They own the reason that they're, you know, uh, making, making money. Um, they want more of a say in their government. You know, basically it's taxa- no taxation without representation taken to a big level. But, you know, we're going to talk about cyber, um, and cybersecurity. And, and I have done, you know, right. my work has evolved since 2000, whereas 2000 was on, 
um, economics and democracy, each one of those things right. is being undermined by adversaries using cyber means. Right. And yes. so, you know, yes. where, where my thesis was, once you have greater uh, ownership over economic means, you want a voice in your government. Well, what happens when the adversary is both undermining those economic means as well as the democracy? Um, it, it really, right. you know, writing it, it would not be the same book if I were writing it now. Yeah. Now, now one might argue, and I don't think I fit in this camp, that because of social media and, and the, the growth of technology, we actually have easier communication to spread the, uh, the democratic concepts and, and give people more of a voice within the country. And I'm not talking about nation states speaking on our behalf. Well, maybe I am, right? Maybe that's part of it because they are skewing public perception within the company, the country more easily mm -hmm. also. How do you, how do you think? I, that? I think I think um, it's a it's a race, <laughs> it's a race between being able to give people the the means to communicate, the means to understand and and see, um, and uh, you know what is occurring in the world, how to get their voices heard, how to reach Congress, right? You know, before you either had to show up right. at a member's office or write a letter or pick up the phone, now you can you know log your either congratulations or your complaint, mostly probably the complaint on their website, and then they can count how many stand on their desk, uh, you even. know how many how many of their constituents think one way or the other. Um, so opening that kind of communication pathway um, can be fantastic for for democracy, um, but democracy isn't right. a free for all and it's not a cacophony. And so, you know, both in terms of um, just the sheer noise, getting the signal through the noise is is a real issue on expanding information right. and communication. But then you have the adversary and, and others that just want to cause harm, um, subverting right. and manipulating all of both the platforms to convey a message and the message themselves. Um, so it's a very crowded space and I think the race is on and, and not to be too dorky and wonky, but the cost benefit analysis of this expansion is it's, it's not yet tallied. Right. I, I think it's one of the greatest risks we have to our democracy personally. We'll see over time. Just the ability for other nation states to reach into, in this case, the United States of America, but really any yeah. most countries, and change the narrative, or at least impact. Well, the we see it happening in real time, right, with Russia <clears throat> um, uh, trying to change yeah. the narrative on Ukraine, and of course China. Um, back in back, my think tank back in 2018 um, released a report on cyber-enabled economic warfare, which we can can get to in more in depth. But it looks at how adversaries use cyber means to undermine key components of an economy in order to weaken that country politically, diplomatically, strategically. Right. So think about it. You know, if if you can't get money from the ATM, the bank is down. The power is down, the water is down. And now the, our country, a, a country needs to have some overseas contingency, needs to do something on, you know, on Taiwan or on Ukraine. You know, the, the, the people of, let's say, the United States would say, well, you know, we're a little bit busy right now. We can't get money out of our ATM. The power is off. The, we can't get our water. Right. So using so using cyber means against economic components and all those things are in the private sector can right. constrain the choices of a government. 
Um, and, you know, the same with information and communications technologies. I think it's so when we wrote this report in 2018, we looked at Russia, China, North Korea and Iran. We're coming out with a new version um, within the next few months, and we're going to look at an update. And on the China side, on, on the others as well, but particularly on the China side, there's been a real noticeable uptick in going after information and communication technologies. Why? Both to gather data, but as you said, Eric, to be able to control the narrative. Control the narrative by manipulating it or controlling the narrative because you can't get your narrative out if you, if you want to go on you know, Chinese government or influence networks and they don't like your narrative. And guess what? It's not, good. It's not getting out there. Right. It's interesting. It's the same five players. Uh, like that hasn't, that's been pretty constant. You mean China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, the, the four big ones. Yeah. Or, or four, sorry. Right. Yeah. Different, I mean, different, the, the different capabilities major. and different things that they're going after, um, uh, and how right. they're going after them. But, but yeah, they're, they're, they're the big right. four. No doubt. Right. It, it, I, I was speaking with a friend last week and we were, we were talking about the Ukraine, you know, what's happening. You know, the podcast will come out in a couple of weeks, probably. Um, but as of now, Russia has not moved into the Ukraine. And as of now, I think the United States position is basically if Russia does decide to advance into the Ukraine, we will we will focus more on sanctions than active conflict, I think is a f roughly fair statement. Um, but if we sanction Russian banks in the process, they, they really can't sanction the United States of America. They don't, they don't have that leverage. But there's nothing to stop them. And this is where the discussion I felt got real. I, I was arguing there's nothing to stop a cyber attack on U.S. banks. I mean, that is their recourse and it's relatively easy. And the concern I have is an escalation at that well, point. And why would it stop at banks? Right? Or why would it start at banks? I mean, it could well, start well, at banks, it, well, but, exactly. but you're absolutely right. It's, it's kind of going back to what we were talking about in terms of cyber-enabled economic warfare. I mean, you know, the, the Russians have gas, the Russians have nuclear weapons, the Russians have some other, you know, weaponry, but, you know, they, they know that our, in, in our strength is our vulnerability, right? So in the United States, we are exactly. only the strongest military in the world because we're the strongest economy in the world, right? It is our economic might that creates our innovation, that creates our weaponry, that creates the ability to gather and assess information and intelligence and then use it. Um, and so go after kind of the planks, the platform of our strength, which is our economy, and you constrain, weaken, or, you know, and, and certainly demoralize, um, could demoralize the American people, which is, you know, <laughs> it could be coming to a theater near you, um, you know, with what's going on in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, it is why the Cyber Solarium uh, Commission uh, one of the key recommendations was for the uh, administration to create a continuity of the economy plan, similar to, you know, back in the Cold War and still exercise today, continuity of operations and continuity of government. You know, if the Soviets back then, um, you know, launched a major strike against the U.S., even including a nuclear strike, there were plans in place to reconstitute the government so that there could we could respond. And that was a layer of deterrence. That was a plank of deterrence. The Soviets knew we had the capability to come back and impose costs. 
So the Cyberspace Solarium Commission said, we need something like that on the economy, since again, that is our greatest strength. Continuity of the economy planning right. helps think about what gets up and running first. How do you do it? We don't have one of them yet. Right. And to your point, I mean, it's our greatest strength, but it's also our greatest weakness. It's, it's the soft underbelly, if you ask me, right? The countries you mentioned really aren't going to effectively sanction us. Maybe China. But cyber-wise, certainly Russia and China have the ability to to uh, attack us and destabilize the economy at a minimum. Yeah. Yeah. We saw it, you know, North Korea against South Korea starting in 2012. Um, you know, likewise, very similar, right? But, you know, start to sow fear um, into another country by mm -hmm. shutting off lights, by, you know, uh, uh, you know, hitting, hitting food and distribution supply chains. And you're going to send your soldiers off to war when, you know, their family, their mothers, their, their sisters, their fathers, their brothers can't get baby food um, or can't withdraw money from an ATM or the power goes out. Uh, it's, it, it constrains options, options very, very quickly. So having a plan to reconstitute and what gets online first, the, the order of recovery um, is, is essential and it's kind of astounding it's kind of astounding that we don't have it, and not even the beginnings of that plan. So it's been a year plus since um, it became legislation in the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, and uh, as far as we know, the, the Biden administration has not yet taken the steps that they need to take. The, the Congress required that in two years, the administration come back with the beginnings of a plan, right? A plan for a plan, not that, you know, it's going to take a lot of work. So it was never that it was going to be finished in two years, but it was going to be started. There was going to be a plan for a plan. So we're a year plus in, and there is no indication that there is even a real beginning um, to affect that planning process. Does that scare you, Rachel? Well, I mean, it's, you know, you know, I always struggle on these things, right? I mean, we talk about cyber pandemics. I think you you uh, wrote a byline earlier in the year, Sam, kind of looking at the next pandemic could be a cyber pandemic. And we're always waiting for the next shoe to drop. But it seems like in the last few years, it's changing so quickly, the geopolitical landscape and how to navigate that forward. It, it almost seems like you could create a plan you know, last year and it's already out of out of date, right? By the time you get to the next year. and And, and so I guess, how do you... How do you create a plan for a plan when it's so dynamic and constantly shifting that you're ever going to get ahead of it? I guess that's where I struggle. Hold I mean, on. Is it better to not have a plan then? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is- Plan's not outdated. We just don't have one. Well, there's that too. But, you know, I mean, it's so much of what we do. And I think the, you know, government a lot of times, you know, be, you need a lot of people to to be vested in this and, and to move it forward. And you absolutely need a plan, but it's- how, how do you create a plan that is forward thinking enough to get a, ahead of things instead of continuously trying to catch up? And I don't have the answer for that, but I, I think um, it's always such a, a fascinating story when it comes to cyber because there's no easy so, answer. So I'll give you a, I'll, um, I'll give you a, a small okay, quick pushback on um, where to at least start, right? So, you know, there's 50 states, there's, you know, tens and thousands of, of, of localities, whatever, but there are certain critical ones um, you know, you could say New York for finance or, or whatever, oil and gas. Sure. Okay, fine. So you start to narrow down, you know, these are the things that, upon which our economy really rests. All right. Now there's power, yes. there's water. 
Um, there's, you know, right. there's uh, uh, telecommunications. Right. So which of these things, and there's a limited number of resources. So what's the order of priority to start to get them to flow quickly? Mm -hmm. Now, do those actors, does a Verizon or an AT&T know which is the priority? And are they working in collaboration with the power and water in certain states and localities? Right. So, right. so even I got, I got your point. I agree with it, but there are definite ways to start this that will not, you know, change Definitely. very quickly. Right. Now, That's a great I, point. I will say I, I was reading the the Cyberspace Solarium Commission's annual report on implementation over the weekend in preparation for this meeting, the 2021. And Section 5.1, you don't have to look it up, <laughs> talks about systemically important critical infrastructure. Right. So we know there in the U.S. there's 16 designated critical infrastructure sectors and they're trying to codify the concept of systemically important critical infrastructure. I'm going to assume Samantha, that's probably water's probably in there. Banking's probably, there are a couple of things in there, but it's an orange or yellow status, depending on your monitor color calibration and their intent. And it's legisl legislation proposed. So we are, we, we've identified there's a need, I think, but we really haven't done a whole lot to advance that and really prioritize our, our areas of importance or weakness, depending on how you look at it. But the, the, the cyber, the, the cyberspace Solarium commission at least laid that framework, Rachel, right? The, the plan yeah. for the plan, in my opinion, it's, it's an outstanding document. We haven't progressed very quickly against right. the recommendations, but, but they did put what yes. I consider to be a pretty good plan for the plan in place. Hey, mm -hmm. these are the things you should consider. These are the things you should do. Samantha, I don't know if you agree or, or disagree. With I, that. I completely agree. I mean, we haven't been able to get it through Congress yet. Um, you know, there was some pushback from, you know, frankly, the some of the sectors that haven't been regulated as much in the past. And they got very mm -hmm. concerned mm -hmm. that does this, does this mean there's going to be an, another layer of regulation? I mean, the, 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 right. the sectors that have been regulated in the past know how to kind of work with government. And in fact, one of our great commissioners, Tom Fanning, who's CEO of Southern Company, was, was really the driving force behind um, SICI, systemically important critical infrastructure. Uh, so, so these are the kind of things that, that and I'll talk, that, that need to still get across the line with the announcement of the retirement of really the phenomenal Jim Langevin, Congressman Langevin, um, as yeah. well as Congressman yes. Katko. Um, you know, we're really losing a, a couple people that know the cyber issue inside and out. Um, we all need to, to make sure that there are folks that can take up the torch um, from these fantastic you know, fantastic individuals that know the issue, that care about the issue, can work across lines to get things done. Um, the Solarium Commission exactly. is has wrapped up as a uh, .gov organization, but it has reconstituted as a .org, uh, and we are going yes. to be focused on. So it's nonprofit. It's it's funded by American philanthropies and philanthropists to continue the work of yes. of Solarium. It's fantastic. Yeah, it is. Because uh, that needs to happen. It's it, it's amazing the work that's been done uh, through the Cyber Solarium. I'm glad it's continuing. And, can, and I just also need to give a, a shout out. Place. If you yeah. didn't know who came to that commission appointed by a Democrat or appointed by a Republican, you would not know. 
Um, it was for two years and there were 50 meetings, mm -hmm. 52 hour meetings with at least three members of Congress every meeting. Wow. So 52 hour meetings over two years. And while there was some disagreement on, on the committee about how to get things done, it, it was, it was nonpartisan, bipartisan, whatever you want to call it. It was really phenomenal. Yeah. Let's just hope we carry on the work. We advance yes. against it and yes. we increase the velocity because we're not moving at the speed of their adversarial uh, right. competitors. Right. You know, as, as I like to say in sales, you, you have X amount of time in the day. Where are you spending your time? Because that's what you care about. Is it the right place? I don't know, but it certainly doesn't seem like we care enough about some of the topics in here. We're not moving fast enough is what I'm trying to say. Agree. So what will it take? I mean, I'd be interested. You've been on the in on the front line, Sam, for a really long time. Really long time. What would it take for us to to <laughs> to to I mean, because you you understand the landscaping, you know, very intimately. I mean, how can we start moving forward a little bit more uh, with more speed, right? I mean, it's our, our adversaries. We call it malicious innovation uh, and and innovating quite quickly, although they don't have a lot of the constraints right. that you know governments and and others do. But um, I, I feel like we've we figured a lot of things out though too. And and I would love your perspective there on how do we kind of get things pushed yeah. uh, a little bit more forward yeah. quickly. So there yeah. are you know there are a number of components on this. I mean, stem you know starting with perhaps. Um, do we know enough about what the adversary is is creating and planning to do, right? Um, I, I, th there's this phrase in the intelligence community to avoid strategic surprise. In fact, that, that's that's the basically the the main thing our U.S. intelligence community is structured to do to help um, elect you know to help the government avoid strategic surprise. But in terms of cyber, do we know enough about what the plans and capabilities are of our major adversaries on cyber, both on technology and on like the will and means to launch a cyber attack? Right. I, I would would probably say no, that we don't. I, really, I would I would have said yes. Well, I hope you're right. I mean, we know I what hope the you're targets right, are. I hope I'm wrong. Um, okay, but. Uh, well, I don't. I don't know. Being that being right helps, <laughs> right? We we know what the targets are. We know what we can do. We 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 know that our I guess we'll call them near peer adversaries. At least China and Russia are are pretty close to us. We know we have a lot to lose. Do you think we know that? I don't I think mean, I, we I would, know their escalatory could, ladder. I don't. I don't feel confident oh, oh, that, that, that I would we agree understand what would be the triggering point? What, do they do they actually? You know, know what the the rules of the road are, the the, the lines they can't cross. Um, no, because we haven't defined yeah, lines. Right. I mean, this isn't like mutually assured destruction where you can watch demonstration videos of nuclear weapons and you know exactly based on the kiloton of the weapon the impact. That's right. Right. This is something where I mean, and and we've seen it over Not and over. Mm -hmm. You know, malware will get out. You can't control yeah. it necessarily. There can be unintended consequences well beyond what you wanted. And, and honestly, from my perspective, we haven't drawn lines, clear lines, certainly in the United States to date. Yeah. So those, those, those boundaries keep getting tested. And mm -hmm. I could see a situation with the Ukraine where things get out of control and escalate very quickly. I, th I think that that's absolutely right. So I would say so that, you know, that's one component. 
um, you know, really understanding how, you know, strategic surprise could, could evolve and, and what we need to do about it. You know, a second component is, you know, Who's on the front line? We had just talked about this. You know, I, I think the private sector is on the front line as much as anything, but who in the private sector and how, do, how, how can they defend themselves? Um, I saw that the Senate Homeland Security Committee just you know, pushed forth uh, bipartisan legislation to, to have uh, CISA really help small, medium-sized enterprise, right? Because when you're talking really the right. lifeblood... If you're a small and medium-sized enterprise, how are you supposed to know what you're really supposed to do to protect yourself against, you know, a nation-state actor? Okay, fine. Change your passwords. I mean, you got to do things to not have your door wide open for the bad guys, but it's just too much. And, you know, it's it's too difficult. It's too much. You know, the, the this you know, how are we not having secure hardware and software and communications, and yet we all rely on this thing? I mean, it's kind of nuts. Um, and it's and it's too much. Well, it's very decentralized. It's very fragment. I mean, no, no one organization is really in charge. Well, right. So, you know, some of the things we didn't get passed at the Cyber Slayer and Commission, because, you know, frankly, they were too hard. You know, do we need kind of an underwriter's lab for, you know, for software? We didn't focus enough mm-hmm. I have to say, looking back, um, I think that if we were starting now for Solarium, we'd focus much more on on hardware and software supply chains, uh, and especially information and communication technology supply chains, um, because I really feel like the small and medium-sized enterprises of this country are just, they're just, they're out there, you know, on their own, completely vulnerable with with not a lot of help and assistance um, to protect themselves. And, and the right. information that they're getting, do this, do that, it's not, these things weren't created for them. You know, they were created, you mm-hmm. know, the, the guidance is created for companies that have a chief information security officer and a chief technical officer. But, you know, um, most of our businesses don't have those things. And, and that includes water sewer treatment facilities, power at the local level, regional level, they typically don't. I mean, heck, Colonial Pipeline barely had We saw the impact They probably that. didn't have an excuse, but uh, Mark Montgomery, Admiral Montgomery, and I had a piece in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago, an op-ed on, on water and cyber and water. And there are something like 77,000 water utilities around the country. And a lot of them are are small. And a lot of them 10 years ago said, oh, hey, I can buy this internet of things, or at that point it was like a connected device, and put it in and, you know, fire a couple people and be able to check what's going on in the water utility from afar, not thinking, oh, by the way, that thing was made in China. It's completely vulnerable, and I don't have the staff to download patches. I wouldn't know what to do anyway. Um, and it's created a you know real vulnerability. You can kind of live in the dark maybe for a couple days, but try living without water. Yeah, I think Ted Koppel wrote about that in his book, Lights Out. I think he, he modeled the breakdown in Manhattan after two days of no water and sewer. And it's, you know, people think about power. They, they, you don't think about water. You turn the faucet and it's on. You turn... You plug something in and you have power. Yeah. What happens with two days when you have millions of people in a tight area without water? It's it's catastrophic. It is. It is catastrophic. You know, um, and and there are things that can be done at different at different points for different parts of our population. I mean, I think those in more rural, semi-rural, 
can become more hardened. Now I now live in rural areas, so maybe I'm you know doing it for myself. But they can become more hardened to not have to rely on the the federal government or their state and localities if something happens. They that's where we should also be focused: how to make at the smallest level right. possible resilient. Right. So whether it's the individual in a rural yeah. area, whether it's a locality, whether it's a state, how do you build resiliency at that at the smallest level to then it can become you can recover more quickly? Because if anything right. from Katrina on, you know, you start to look for at the US, you know, the federal government for help and assistance to get back up and running, you can be waiting quite a while. Well, I feel Katrina is a great example. Right. You know, I, I feel with natural disasters, with with even COVID, we've seen people look, we, we've taken more action, more rapid action, right? People may stockpile water or at least containers or right. they may buy iodine tablets or, or a drop of bleach to help purify water or bleach. Um, not recommending any <laughs> techniques here on the show, by the way. Um, but even with COVID, we've we've seen action. Intel's now building a fab yeah. in Ohio. We're bringing more things back into the country because we had a a a, a massive event. But but those physical events right. are almost akin to the nuclear era with with MAD, mutually assured destruction, where people can tangibly see the yeah. impact. With cyber, I, I I would argue the common citizen, pretty much anywhere in the world doesn't understand the potential impact. It's not real. It's not tangible for them and they don't prepare for it. Fortunately, we do have natural disasters, pandemics and things that, that somewhat better prepare us for events that could, could, uh, could, could uh, come about in a, of a cyber nature. Yeah. Lack of water from cyber attack or lack of water from, power going out because right. of a storm, same end result could be a lot worse at the national. I mean, if power starts to go out across the country, the U.S. federal government FEMA will be rapidly overwhelmed. With, yeah. Maybe the scale is different, but the end result. Yeah. Without a, and again, you know, uh, kind of uh, quoting uh, Tom Fanning, the, you know, my, my co-commissioner, you know, he, he was very intent on to make sure that Southern Company and um, had had ways to um, go back to analog on certain of their systems. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, again, it's to how do you build serious resiliency? Um, you know, what is the what is the, the government need to not just teach its its population and its its businesses, but to show them the path for these are the products. This is how you can, you know, replicate systems. This is how you can make sure your data is stored away. So just in case, you know, you're taken down from a, any type of cyber attack or ransom attack, you can reconstitute because your data is held somewhere else, right? To have water supplies. I mean, it's to build resiliency and not to think that, you know, the government's going to come riding in to save you. Which I think we're used to. Natural disaster, governors declares a state of emergency, right. FEMA comes in, we start helping everybody out and we get back online. But I agree with you. I think the interconnectedness of the economy, of, of the economic systems, I, I don't know Southern Company very well. I'm assuming they're power generation yeah, tell, primarily. Yeah, grid, grid upper, yep, but, yep. But what if, the, what if the transmission operators don't have resiliency? Now they're generating all this power and they can't do anything. Well, 
you know, what if they're running on natural gas and they can't get gas to their generation facilities? Now they're not generating power, even though they did everything right. Yeah. So it is the interconnectedness. Um, and, and that goes again to how do you build a continuity economy plan? What comes up first? Because they're all going to be looking, you know, to, to the same couple nodes and, you know, I ran this tabletop exercise a few years ago, and we had representatives from uh, the financial sector and telecom and and water and power and gas. Um, and you know, the, and you know, the the bankers said, "Well, if everything goes down, we got to get online first because we're the banks." At which point, that you know, right. the telecommunications said, "Yeah, well, you're not going to be able to get online unless we get online." Because you know you're not going to be able to communicate. Unless we have lines. And then the electricity companies. <laughs> There's no online. Exactly. Without and us. then the electricity company said, "Yeah, we'll try running a telecommunications company without power." <laughs> at which point the oil and gas said, "Yeah, at that point, sixty percent of our power was oil and gas." So you know, it it showed that they're all going to be looking at you know the same interdependencies, but. But we can work through this and at least have for our most essential and critical functions in the most critical places in our country, the, the mm -hmm. order of battle to recover, right? Not everyone's going to be happy. In fact, most people won't. Um, but Verizon or AT&T right. needs to know in advance, you know what? You got to get, you know, place A up in line before place B, because for our national security, right. that's the most important. And it shouldn't be, I believe it shouldn't be left to AT&T or Verizon or, or what else to make those decisions. That has to be decided beforehand right. and has to be decided in conjunction with the other critical services so that, so that it works in tandem to recover. Okay. So in the last three, four minutes or so of the show here, how do we get there? I mean, who's going to drive that? What's it going to take? Rachel's looking at me like, Eric, give me some hope. Give me something. <laughs> don't don't just shoot out the chandelier and walk out of the building is what Rachel's thinking right now. Um, well, you know, the, the law on continuity of the economy, um, we, we didn't direct. We said to the White House, you pick. You know, um, pick pick the head of DHS, pick Chris Inglis as national cyber director to to lead the interagency. Um, and, uh, you know, they they have yet to kind of really, you know, said this is the way this is who's going to lead it. Um, but, you know, that's that's a start. I am a big, big fan of the states as laboratories. Right. And so, um, you know, I've been in, on a mission talking to governors, talking to certain, you know, districts down in Texas and Arizona and New Jersey. You know what? Create your own continuity of the economy plan for um, states and, and local areas. You know, make sure you are as hardened as possible. Bring those plans to DHS. Um, you know, there'll be a number of different plans. We can see which one works. Exercise them. Uh, so I, I would, again, push it down to states and, and localities to see how it can work at that level um, before just waiting to rely on, on a, a, you know, a federal agency to do all the planning. Yeah, because if, if you wait on the feds, I don't know that they'll ever be able to pull it together across all the 50 states and territories. Yeah, it's it's different. We, we, like you mentioned, we have Chris Inglis, yeah. the national cyber director, but and he's fantastic. Last I heard, their budget was two hundred and fifty k. The seventy, I think they had like seventy five heads. They weren't there was no appropriation for them. Hmm. So Chris is pulling staff from CISA and elsewhere to the extent that he can, and people will help out. But we haven't like it takes a long time to to move the federal right. government. 
It's a very large right. steamship. So start at the state and localities. If you need to give them authorities or some money um, and, and test it out, there are certain joint bases, um, DOD bases, that have power, water, com- and telecom coming from outside the base. That's a great place to start. Right. Right? Just start there. Yeah. And see how, yeah. you know, so, so there are yeah, steps to take that, that are bite-sized, that don't make you want to put your head down and, and you know, hide under the covers. Right. Which, okay, we want to do anyway. But there are, there are certainly <laughs> things that, you know, that we can, we can take and do. Rachel, okay. last question. There's wow. some optimism. <laughs> yeah, wait. Can, can we have a little? Can we wrap up a little optimism, <laughs> Sam? <laughs> we are. Sure. I, mean, I, I agree. Yeah. I think I think states and localities can take affirmative action on behalf of their constituents. Yes. Yes. And I mean, and, and I forget the, um, the the law or whatever it is where you you kind of make these incremental changes, and over time they add up to be very significant. You know, I think sports teams kind of embrace that that thinking. Uh, um, I, I love this of, of states kind of, you know, take, taking the power, right, for themselves. And, and, and I love that and sharing knowledge. I mean, I think that was one of the things that you'd also recently written on is information sharing, um, just the, the criticality of that for folks to be able to respond in the right yeah. way. Yeah. So I, I think it's all heading in the right direction, which is, it's just exciting. And it's, you know, cyber is finally kind of that top conversation that everyone seems to be having. Um, I don't know if that's where you're seeing it from where you sit, Samantha, but that's kind of my sense these days that the tide has finally turned to where this is a little bit more of an uh, important national, you know, international. I agree. And, and also one, one last comment for me on this, Uh, people are recognizing that, that for the cybersecurity field, we don't just need a whole bunch more engineers, right? So the conversation is also broadening in terms of, you know, we need visual artists. We need people that can actually talk, you know, to other people. Yes. We mean we need a diverse community because the tools that are being developed have to go to a diverse community. Um, and exactly. so, you know, and, and there is movement on that. So that's, so that's hopeful as well. Uh, fully agree. We need to go faster, but we are making great progress bringing people into the industry compared to where we were five years ago, even. Absolutely. Okay, Rachel, our time has come to an end. It has. It has. Um, Dr. Samantha Ravitch, thank you so much for joining us. I, I feel like I learned so much in this conversation, too. And I have to ask, do you have a, another book coming out? Or I would love to... To, no, to track by. any new publications that you might have coming. <laughs> yeah. At this point, you know, two-page memos, op-eds, but uh, there'll be a book there somewhere. Yeah. And our new monograph Wonderful. on cyber-enabled Wait. economic warfare from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies should be coming out in the next couple months. Oh, fantastic. We look forward to that. Well, thanks again for joining us. And, and thanks to all of our listeners for joining us this week. And, and as always, don't forget to smash the subscribe button and you get a fresh episode, including this one, in your email inbox every Tuesday. So until next time, everybody stay safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 